Chapter Seven of Lorna Doone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lorna Doone by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter Seven. Hard it is to climb. So many a winter night went by in a hopeful and pleasant manner, with the hissing of the bright round bullets cast into the water and the spluttering of the great red apples which Annie was roasting for me. We always managed our evening's work in the chimney of the back kitchen, where there was room to set chairs and table in spite of the fire burning. On the right-hand side was a mighty oven, where Betty threatened to bake us, and on the left long sides of bacon made up of favoured pigs and growing very brown and comely. Annie knew the names of all, and ran up to the wood-smoke every now and then, when a gentle memory moved her, and asked them how they were getting on, and when they would like to be eaten. Then she came back with foolish tears at thinking of that necessity, and I, being soft in a different way, would make up my mind against bacon. But, Lord bless you, it was no good. Whenever it came to breakfast-time, after three hours upon the moors, I regularly forgot the pigs, but paid good heed to the rashers. For ours is a hungry county, if such there be in England, a place, I mean, where men must eat, and are quick to discharge the duty. The air of the moors is so shrewd and wholesome, staring a man's recollection of the good things which have betided him, and waiting his hope of something still better in the future, that by the time he sits down to a cloth, his heart and stomach are tuned too well to say nay to one another. Almost everybody knows, in our part of the world at least, how pleasant and soft the fall of the land is round about Plover's Barrow's farm. All above it is strong dark mountain, spread with heath, and desolate, but near our house the valleys cove and open warmth and shelter. Here are trees and bright green grass and orchards full of contentment, and a man may scarce espy the brook, although he hears it everywhere. And indeed a stout good piece of it comes through our farmyard, and swells sometimes to a rush of waves when the clouds are on the hilltops. But all below, where the valley bends and the Lynn stream comes along with it, pretty meadows slope their breasts and the sun spreads on the water. And nearly all of this is ours, till you come to Nicholas Snow's land. But about two miles below our farm, the Bagworthy water runs into the Lynn and makes a real river of it. Thence it hurries away with strength and a force of wilful waters under the foot of a bare-faced hill, and so to rocks and woods again, where the stream is covered over and dark, heavy pools delay it. There are plenty of fish all down this way, and the farther you go, the larger they get, having deeper grounds to feed in. And sometimes in the summer months, when Mother could spare me off the farm, I came down here with Annie to help because it was so lonely and caught well-nigh a basketful of little trout and minnows with a hook and a bit of worm on it, or a fern-web, or a blow-fly, hung from a hazel pole-stick. For, of all the things I learnt at Blundell's, only two abode with me, and one of these was the knack of fishing, and the other the art of swimming. And indeed they have a very rude manner of teaching children to swim there, for the big boys take the little boys and put them through a certain process which they grimly call sheep-washing. In the third meadow, from the gate of the school going up the river, there is a fine pool in the low man where the Taunton brook comes in, and they call it the Taunton Pool. 
The water runs down with a strong, sharp stickle, and then has a sudden elbow in it where the small brook trickles in, and on that side the bank is steep, four or it may be five feet high, overhanging loamily. But on the other side it is flat, pebbly, and fit to land upon. Now the large boys take the small boys, crying sadly for mercy, and thinking mayhap of their mothers. With hands laid well at the back of their necks, they bring them up to the crest of the bank upon the eastern side, and make them strip their clothes off. Then the little boys, falling on their naked knees, blubber upwards piteously, but the large boys know what is good for them and will not be entreated. So they cast them down, one after other, into the splash of the water, and watch them go to the bottom first, and then come up and fight for it with a blowing and a bubbling. It is a very fair sight to watch when you know there is little danger, because, although the pool is deep, the current is sure to wash a boy up on the stones where the end of the depth is. As for me, they had no need to throw me more than once, because I jumped of my own accord, thinking small things of the lowman after the violent lynn. Nevertheless, I learned to swim there as all the other boys did, for the greatest point in learning that is to find that you must do it. I loved the water naturally, and could not long be out of it, but even the boys who hated it most came to swim in some fashion or other, after they had been flung for a year or two into the Taunton pool. But now, although my sister Annie came to keep me company, and was not to be parted from me by the tricks of the Lynn stream, because I put her on my back and carried her across wherever she could not leap it, or tuck up her things and take the stones, yet so it happened that neither of us had been up the bagworthy water. We knew that it brought a good stream down as full of fish as of pebbles, and we thought it must be very pretty to make a way where no way was, nor even a bullock came down to drink. But whether we were afraid or not, I am sure I cannot tell, because it is so long ago, but I think that had something to do with it. For bagworthy water ran out of Dune Valley, a mile or so from the mouth of it. But when I was turned fourteen years old, and had put into good small clothes, buckled at the knee, and strong blue-worsted hosen knitted by my mother, it happened to me without choice, I may say, to explore the bagworthy water. And it came about in this wise. My mother had long been ailing, and not well able to eat much, and there is nothing that frightens us so much as for people who have no love of their victuals. Now I chanced to remember that once at the time of the holidays I had brought dear mother from Tiverton a jar of pickled loaches caught by myself in the Loman River, and baked in the kitchen oven with vinegar, a few leaves of bay, and about a dozen peppercorns. And mother had said that in all her life she had never tasted anything fit to be compared with them. Whether she said so good a thing out of compliment to my skill in catching the fish and cooking them, or whether she really meant it, is more than I can tell, though I quite believed the latter, and so would most people who tasted them. At any rate, I now resolved to get some loaches for her, and do them in the self-same manner, just to make her eat a bit. There are many people, even now, who have not come to the right knowledge what a loach is, and where he lives, and how to catch and pickle him and I will not tell them all about it, because if I did, very likely there would be no loaches left ten or twenty years after the appearance of this book. A pickled minnow is very good if you catch him in a stickle with the scarlet fingers upon him, but I count him no more than the ropes in beer compared with the loach done properly. Being resolved to catch some loaches, whatever trouble it cost me, 
I set forth without a word to any one, in the forenoon of St. Valentine's Day, 1675-6, to 6, I think it must have been. Any should not come with me, because the water was too cold, for the winter had been long, and snow lay here and there in patches in the hollow of the banks, like a lady's gloves forgotten. And yet the spring was breaking forth, as it always does in Devonshire when the turn of the days is over, and though there was little to see of it, the air was full of feeling. It puzzles me now that I remember all these young impressions so, because I took no heed of them at the time whatever, and yet they come upon me bright when nothing else is evident in the grey fog of experience. I am like an old man gazing at the outside of his spectacles and seeing, as he rubs the dust, the image of his grandson playing at bo-peep with him. But let me be of any age, I never could forget that day and how bitter cold the water was for I doffed my shoes and hose and put them in a bag about my neck, and left my little coat at home and tied my shirt-sleeves back to my shoulders. Then I took a three-pronged fork firmly bound to a rod with cord and a piece of canvas kerchief with a lump of bread inside it, and so went into the pebbly water, trying to think how warm it was. For more than a mile all down the Lynn stream, scarcely a stone I left unturned, being thoroughly skilled in the tricks of the loach, and knowing how he hides himself. For being grey-spotted and clear to see through, and something like a cuttlefish only more substantial, he will stay quite still where a streak of weed is in the rapid water, hoping to be overlooked, not caring even to wag his tail. Then, being disturbed, he flips away like whalebone from the finger, and hies to a shelf of stone, and lies with his sharp head poked in under it. Or sometimes he bellies him into the mud, and only shows his back ridge. And that is the time to spear him nicely, holding the fork very gingerly, and allowing for the bent of it which comes to pass I know not how, at the tickle of air and water. Or, if your loach should not be abroad when first you come to look for him, but keeping snug in his little home, then you may see him come forth amazed at the quivering of the shingles, and awe himself and look at you, and then dart upstream like a little grey streak, and then you must try to mark him in and follow very daintily. So after that, in a sandy place, you steal up behind his tail to him so that he cannot set eyes on you, for his head is upstream always, and there you see him abiding still, clear and mild and affable. Then, as he looks so innocent, you make full sure to prog him well in spite of the rye of the water and the sun making elbows to everything and the trembling of your fingers. But when you gird at him lovingly, and have as good as gotten him, lo, in the go-by of the river he is gone as a shadow goes, and only a little cloud of mud curls away from the points of the fork. A long way down that limpid water, chill and bright as an iceberg, went my little self that day on man's choice errand, destruction. All the young fish seemed to know that I was one who had taken out God's certificate and meant to have the value of it. Every one of them was aware that we desolate more than replenish the earth. For a cow might come and look into the water and put her yellow lips down. A kingfisher, like a blue arrow, might shoot through the dark alleys over the channel or sit on a dipping withy bough with his beak sunk into his breast feathers. Even an otter might float downstream, likening himself to a log of wood with his flat head flush with the water top and his oily eyes peering quietly and yet no panic would seize other life, as it does when a sample of man comes. Now let not any one suppose that I thought of these things when I was young, 
for I knew not the way to do it. And proud enough in truth I was at the universal fear I spread in all those lonely places, where I myself must have been afraid if anything had come up to me. It is all very pretty to see the trees big with their hopes of another year, though dumb as yet on the subject, and the waters murmuring gaiety, and the banks spread out with comfort. But a boy takes none of this to heart, unless he be meant for a poet, which God can never charge upon me, and he would liefer have a good apple, or even a bad one if he stole it. When I had travelled two miles or so, conquered now and then with cold, and coming out to rub my legs into a lively friction, only fishing here and there because of the tumbling water, suddenly in an open space, where meadows spread about it, I found a good stream flowing softly into the body of our brook, and it brought, so far as I could guess by the sweep of it under my kneecaps, a larger power of clear water than the lynn itself had. Only it came more quietly down, not being troubled with stairs and steps as the fortune of the lynn is, but gliding smoothly and forcibly, as if upon some set purpose. Hereupon I drew up and thought, and reason was much inside me, because the water was bitter cold and my little toes were aching. So on the bank I rubbed them well with a sprout of young sting-nettle, and having skipped about a while, was kindly inclined to eat a bit. Now all the turn of all my life hung upon that moment. But as I sat there munching a crust of Betty Muxworthy's sweet brown bread and a bit of cold bacon along with it, and kicking my little red heels against the dry loam to keep them warm, I knew no more than fished under the fork what was going on over me. It seemed a sad business to go back now and tell Annie there were no loaches, and yet it was a frightful thing, knowing what I did of it, to venture where no grown man durst up the bagworthy water. And please to recollect that I was only a boy in those days, fond enough of anything new, but not like a man to meet it. However, as I ate more and more, my spirit arose within me, and I thought of what my father had been, and how he had told me a hundred times never to be a coward. And then I grew warm, and my little heart was ashamed of its pitter-patting, and I said to myself, Now if father looks, he shall see that I obey him. So I put my bag round my back again, and buckled my breeches far up from the knee, expecting deeper water, and crossing the lynn went stoutly up under the branches which hang so dark on the Bagworthy River. I found it strongly overwoven, turned and torn with thicket wood, but not so rocky as the lynn and more inclined to go evenly. There were bars of chafed stakes stretched from the sides halfway across the current, and light outriders of pithy weed, and blades of last year's water-grass trembling in the quiet places, like a spider's threads on the transparent stillness with a tint of olive moving it. And here and there the sun came in, as if his light was sifted, making dance upon the waves and shadowing the pebbles. Here, although affrighted often by the deep, dark places, and feeling that every step I took might never be taken backward, on the whole I had very comely sport of loaches, trout, and minnows, forking some and tickling some, and driving others to shallow nooks, whence I could bail them ashore. Now, if you have ever been fishing, you will not wonder that I was led on, forgetting all about danger and taking no heed of the time, but shouting in a childish way whenever I caught a whacker, as we called a big fish at Tiverton. And in sooth there were very fine loaches here, having more lye and harbourage than in the rough lynn stream, though not quite so large as in the lowman, 
where I have even taken them to the weight of half a pound. But in answer to all my shouts, there was never any sound at all, except of a rocky echo, or a scared bird hustling away, or the sudden dive of a waterfall, and the place grew thicker and thicker, and the covert grew darker above me, until I thought that the fishes might have a good chance of eating me, instead of my eating the fishes. For now the day was falling fast behind the brown of the hilltops, and the trees, being void of leaf and hard, seemed giants ready to beat me. And every moment, as the sky was clearing up for a white frost, the cold of the water got worse and worse, until I was fit to cry with it. And so, in a sorry plight, I came to an opening in the bushes, where a great black pool lay in front of me, whitened with snow, as I thought, at the sides, till I saw it was only foam froth. Now, though I could swim with great ease and comfort, and feared no depth of water when I could fairly come to it, yet I had no desire to go over head and ears into this great pool, being so cramped and weary, and cold enough in all conscience, though wet only up to the middle, not counting my arms and shoulders. And the look of his black pit was enough to stop one from diving into it, even on a hot summer's day with sunshine on the water, I mean, if sun ever shone there. As it was, I shuddered and drew back, not alone at the pool itself and the black air there was about it, but also at the whirling manner and wisping of white threads upon it in stripy circles round and round, and the centre still as jet. But soon I saw the reason of the stir and depth of that great pit, as well as of the roaring sound which long had made me wonder. For skirting round one side with very little comfort because the rocks were high and steep and the ledge at the foot so narrow, I came to a sudden sight and marvel, such as I never dreamed of. For lo, I stood at the foot of a long pale slide of water coming smoothly to me without any break or hindrance for a hundred yards or more, and fenced on either side with cliff, sheer and straight and shining. The water neither ran nor fell, nor leaped with any spouting, but made one even slope of it, as if it had been combed or planed, and looking like a plank of deal laid down a deep black staircase. However, there was no side-rail, nor any place to walk upon, only the channel a fathom wide, and the perpendicular walls of crag shutting out the evening. The look of this place had a sad effect, scaring me very greatly, and making me feel that I would give something only to be at home again, with any cooking my supper, and our dog watch sniffing upward. But nothing would come of wishing, that I had long found out, and it only made one the less inclined to work without white feather. So I laid the case before me in a little council, not for loss of time, but only that I wanted rest and to see things truly. Then says I to myself, John Ridd, these trees and pools and lonesome rocks and the setting of the sunlight are making a gruesome coward of thee. Shall I go back to my mother so, and be called her fearless boy? Nevertheless, I am free to own that it was not any fine sense of shame which settled my decision, for indeed there was nearly as much danger in going back as in going on, and perhaps even more of labour, the journey being so roundabout. But that which saved me from turning back was a strange, inquisitive desire, very unbecoming in a boy of little years. In a word, I would risk a great deal to know what made the water come down like that, and what there was at the top of it. Therefore, seeing hard strife before me, 
I girt up my breeches anew, with each buckle one hole tighter for the sodden straps of stretching and giving, and mayhap my legs were grown smaller from the coldness of it. Then I bestowed my fish around my neck more tightly, and not stopping to look much for fear of fear, crawled along over the fork of the rocks, where the water had scooped the stone out, and shunning thus the ledge from whence it rose like the mane of a white horse into the broad black pool, softly I let my feet into the dip and rush of the torrent. And here I had reckoned without my host, although, as I thought, so clever, and it was much but that I went down into the great black pool, and had never been heard of more, and this must have been the end of me, except for my trusty loach-fork. For the green wave came down like great bottles upon me, and my legs were gone off in a moment, and I had not time to cry out with wonder, only to think of my mother and Annie, and knock my head very sadly, which made it go round so that the brains were no good, even if I had any. But all in a moment, before I knew aught except that I must die out of the way with a roar of water upon me, my fork, praise God, stuck fast in the rock, and I was borne up upon it. I felt nothing except that here was another matter to begin upon, and it might be worth while, or again it might not, to have another fight for it. But presently the dash of the water upon my face revived me, and my mind grew used to the roar of it, and meseemed I had been worse off than this when first flung into the lowman. Therefore I gathered my legs back slowly as if they were fish to be landed, stopping whenever the water flew too strongly off my shin-bones, and coming along without sticking out to let the wave get hold of me. And in this manner I won a footing, leaning well forward like a draught-horse, and balancing on my strength, as it were, with the ashen stake set behind me. Then I said to myself, "'John Ridd, the sooner you get yourself out by the way you came, the better it will be for you.' But to my great dismay and affright, I saw that no choice was left me now, except that I must climb somehow up that hill of water, or else be washed down into the pool and whirl around it till it drowned me. For there was no chance of fetching back by the way I had gone down into it, and further up was a hedge of rock on either side of the waterway, rising a hundred yards in height, and for all I could tell, five hundred, with no place to set a foot in. Having said the Lord's Prayer, which was all I knew, and made a very bad job of it, I grasped the good loach-stick under a knot, and steadied me with my left hand, and so, with a sigh of despair, began my course up the fearful torrent-way. To me it seemed half a mile at least of sliding water above me, but in truth it was little more than a furlong as I came to know afterwards. It would have been a hard ascent, even without the slippery slime, and the force of the river over it, and I had scanty hope indeed of ever winning the summit. Nevertheless, my terror left me, now I was face to face with it and had to meet the worst, and I set myself to do my best, with a vigour and a sort of hardness which did not then surprise me, but have done so ever since. The water was only six inches deep or from that to nine at the utmost, and all the way up I could see my feet looking white in the gloom of the hollow, and here and there I found a resting place to hold on by the cliff and pant a while. And gradually, as I went on, a warmth of courage breathed in me, to think that perhaps no other had dared to try that pass before me, and to wonder what my mother would say to it. And then came thought of my father also, and the pain of my feet abated. How I went carefully, step by step, 
keeping my arms in front of me, and never daring to straighten my knees is more than I can tell clearly, or even like now to think of, because it makes me dream of it. Only I must acknowledge that the greatest danger of all was just where I saw no jeopardy, but ran up a patch of black ooze-weed in a very boastful manner, being now not far from the summit. Here I fell very piteously, and was like to have broken my kneecap, and the torrent got hold of my other leg while I was indulging the bruised one. And then a vile knotting of cramp disabled me, and for a while I could only roar till my mouth was full of water and all of my body was sliding. But the fright of that brought me to again, and my elbow caught in a rock-hole, and so I managed to start again with the help of more humility. Now, being in the most dreadful fright because I was so near the top and hope was beating within me, I laboured hard with both legs and arms, going like a mill and grunting. At last the rush of forked water where first it came over the lips of the fall drove me into the middle, and I stuck a while with my toe-balls on the slippery links of the pop-weed, and the world was green and glittery, and I durst not look behind me. Then I made up my mind to die at last, for so my legs would ache no more, and my breath not pain my heart so. Only it did seem such a pity after fighting so long to give in, and the light was coming upon me, and again I fought towards it. Then suddenly I felt fresh air and fell into it headlong. End of chapter 7 Read by Landy in Sydney, Australia, August 2008